Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Today on The Nose, our weekly cultural roundtable. I would put eighth grade uh, in a category with a string of movies that also includes Lady Bird and Boyhood. Movies that look in a fairly disjointed way at incidents in an average childhood or pre-adolescence or adolescence. They tend to be short on drama and I guess high on verite. We'll talk about how that worked in this particular case. We'll also talk about reform at the Oscars. They want to break out the popular movies into a separate category. I'm actually going to defend this idea, sort of. Uh, We'll also talk about an unusually frank interview granted by the actress Kathleen Turner. It's all coming up on The Nose after the news. Welcome to The Nose. Uh, Today on The Nose, we're going to talk about an interview by Kathleen Turner about the Oscars. It's controversial. I think it is controversial. And actually sort of of much despised uh, new rules proposal. I guess it's not even a proposal. Uh, And the movie Eighth Grade. Uh, And before I even introduce the panelists, I want to say to the panelists, you guys are so cool. You guys are so cool. It's like so great to be with you because you're so cool. I mean, like some people aren't that cool, but you guys are so cool. So it's really good to be with you. Okay. That's pretty much how the dialogue goes in eighth grade a lot. Um, (laughs) Like in real life in eighth eighth grade IRL and also in eighth grade the movie. Uh, Zandra Ellen is a production intern at WNPR. Is this your last day? Uh, no, next Friday. Oh, next Friday. Next That's right. Yeah, you're producing Thursday. a whole episode we'll next, next Thursday. So, yeah. uh, and but uh, we we kind of reserved this. We thought we wanted somebody who had been somewhat recently in eighth grade, mm-hmm. uh, and so Zandra uh, obviously fits that bill. Uh, and Carolyn Payne is an actress, comedian, dancer, founder, director, choreographer of Kinetic Kinetic Dance. Why can't I say that? Uh, Kate Russian is a poet uh, whose The Bridge Poem <laughs> is featured in the Atlantic in a video project by the filmmaker Lucy Walker. Um, so uh, before we get to eighth grade and to uh, Kathleen Turner, we're going to talk about this uh, new idea for the Oscar rules. Oscars won't televise all the awards and is going to a- add popular film category. They're, they say they're going to do this. I want to talk about whether it's a good idea or not. They uh, say they're going to do this in time for the 91st Oscars. That would be this February's Oscars. And by the way, they are going to be earlier uh, in the season. Things are going to be different. But the the thing that is attracting a lot of attention is this notion of making two best picture categories. Um, And a single film could be eligible in both categories, Outstanding Achievement in Popular Film and the Academy Award for Best Picture. So it's that new idea of the Outstanding Achievement achievement in popular film uh, that is creating a stir. Uh, and so let's talk about that stir. I should say that on the show today, I'm prepared to be the unpopular contrarian <laughs> because I think I can actually defend this decision a little bit anyway, sort of. But Kate, what did you make of it? Well, my first question is, does that mean that Black Panther will get the popular nomination yeah. and not the best? 
or will remember it, get it can low? be it can be both. Okay, we'll we'll look for it. I mean, well, I, I think you've hit on. I, I, I was going to wait to say this. I think this is the reason they shouldn't do it this year. They should <laughs> wait a year because, like, realistically, I'm sorry for jumping in with an opinion, but I just. I, I think Black Panther is a great example. If if you could set aside, if you could imagine a world in which the Academy had not been completely horrible and systematically dismissive of the work of black artists, so that's a very different world from the one that we live in, Black Panther would be a great example of probably the kind of movie that they're talking about. Look, it's a terrific movie with a great aesthetic, but it's a comic book movie. It's a comic book movie you know, th- that probably shouldn't be forced to compete with If Beale Street Could Talk, uh, which will be coming out later, directed by Barry Jenkins, the guy who directed Moonlight. But because of everything that's happened before, this is a year where a lot of people want to see Black Panther up there in the regular uh, best picture category. All right, I'll shut up. Well, one category I like to see is uh, is an award for best ensemble cast. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, Taraji P. Henson, who I thought was terrific in Hidden Figures and played totally against against type, I think deserved a nomination, which she didn't get. But I would have been happy if the cast had gotten uh, a best ensemble performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, another category I would like to see is uh, the most obviously snubbed movie or actor that was snubbed for obviously political reasons, and for that I would I would give I would give a retroactive award to uh, Spike Lee's Malcolm X. Well, I think I mean one thing that I suggested that that they should do instead, as long as we're kind of proposing, is do kind of what the Baseball Hall of Fame does and like wait ten years and then look at the movies of or, or five years and look at the movies of five years ago to see if there are any movies that they kind of didn't get at the time. I mean, like The Big Lebowski or something or His Girl Friday. These were movies never even nominated. Well, let me just go around the table here just see what else. So, Zandra, uh, I don't know how invested the, in the Oscars you've managed to be in your relatively young life, but um, what do you think of this idea? Yeah, I'm definitely not very invested in the Oscars. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and make kind of the obvious argument against this move, um, which is uh, just that I, I think it's I think it's kind of admirable that the Academy has decided to finally acknowledge that they, um, you know, are that their perspective is not representative of a larger perspective of, of moviegoers. Um, however, I feel like making the categorical distinction between what is of artistic merit and what is um of popular merit, of like uh, of popular appeal, um, is a kind of a problematic distinction, and maybe um, kind of sidestepping a problem that they're st- that they're beginning to finally acknowledge. Um, you know, they're saying like, yes, we're snobs, but we're also going to acknowledge the movies that the plebeians like to go and see. Um, and again, just going back to this argument that um, I think is worth making that this probably is in. Uh, in response to the Oscar so black or Oscar so white movement, um, is um, that you know this this category is going to clearly become kind of a catch-all for movies that are extremely popular and have been proven to be extremely popular over the past few years, which are movies that star casts predominantly of color. Um, this is going to become the catch-all category for those films. Um, so I think that. They could easily merge the two categories, um, but it doesn't seem like they're really uh, prepared to do that. Yeah, Carolyn, what's your take? I think that this is just a desperate plea to get people to watch the Oscars again. I think people just don't care. Like, mm-hmm. 
I I actually host a local Oscar event. I'm like I I've uh, done that for a couple of years now. Colin originated it, and I think people go to an event like that. But the, a lot of people go into an event built around the Oscars because there are events like all over the country that do things like that and parties that you can go to, Oscar night parties. People just go to that for the party itself. Most people at that event aren't even watching the Oscars or can even talk about who is nominated. Or well, they had their worst ratings year, I think, ever this past year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, yeah. I, and I, I, mean, and I, don't, I don't think one changing one category is going to boost their, their right. ratings. So I think that this is kind of a uh, – I, I, I think – it's it's an attempt to do that, and it's getting people talking about the Oscars. But I think it 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 does it's going to pose problematic for again continuing to create this divide between how how we see films and who we're and who we're nominating, what we're nominating. I think it's just going to continue to divide that more. Well, look, first of all, what are the Oscars for? I mean, uh, from the point of view of the Academy Awards. <laughs> Uh, by the, or the Academy, uh, they are to recognize great achievements in filmmaking, blah, blah, blah. But for us, what are they for? Well, they're basically to argue about and to kind of have fun talking about and push back and forth. And uh, to see what and, people are wearing. <laughs> to see like, what people are wearing. Well, you know, I, I, I admit yeah. I'm, I'm one of those people who reads the New York Times uh, obituaries. So <laughs> one of the things I watch the Oscars <laughs> for is for the in memoriam. Right. <laughs> but I mean the Oscars themselves, those awards. I, I think, you know, we spend a lot of time arguing uh, about them and, and debating them and pondering them and to who got snubbed and what, you know. And and I just think this is the reason that I think it's an okay thing to do. First of all, I mean, in the scheme of things, the Oscars don't matter. I mean, they really don't matter. Um, if I asked everybody point blank right now which film won Best Picture uh, last year, you might struggle to come up with the answer. I happen to know it. But, um, but you know, it's it, it, they don't matter. Um, it was Shape of Water. But, oh. um Really? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right? I would have never gotten that. Okay, right? <laughs> see? See, the Oscars don't matter. But, the, you know, they are fun to argue about. And it seems to me if you create this category where – let's take Black Panther out of the equation right now because I really do think we're in kind of a sui generis situation with that. But, you know, if, if it could be just as much fun to argue whether Solo is better than Mission Impossible – uh, fallout as it is to as it's going to be to argue out you know these questions in the sort of artistic category and in terms of like getting people to watch I don't know 2009 was the year that kind of broke the Oscars a little bit because the Dark Knight was not nominated and a lot of people thought that Christopher Nolan was a more fully developed directing talent at that moment and that that movie artistically, aesthetically, you know, in lots of different ways, deserved some kind of consideration. But it was a comic book movie, so they didn't nominate it. And they, they still have that problem. So give them a category where they can put all that stuff over there and we can argue about it. I don't know. Is that such a bad idea? Argue against it, though. Most well, people think I'm wrong. Well, I'm not going to argue against it. But... <laughs> um, I'm not going to argue against it because, as you said, it doesn't really matter. And I also happen to know uh, from just uh, overhearing, like, the kids of Academy um, uh, members talking is that it, it really is very political and inside inside baseball and behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And what one thing that makes me – that's really irritating to me about the Oscars is that – the, I, an obviously strong performance will get snubbed, like Denzel Washington, and then the next year, you know, he'll get the Oscar for playing a sadistic 
psychopathic cop because they couldn't give it to him for Malcolm X. And that's what I really find mm-hmm. irritating about the whole setup. I I kind of want to push back on this idea that Black Panther is an outlier film and that we mm-hmm. shouldn't do it this year because of Black Panther. Because if we think about like last year at the Oscars, this is the award that Get Out would have won last year, I think. Um, and so I think that this is going to become, like I said, a catch-all category for superhero movies, fantastic horror movies, phenomenal chick flicks, and movies starring predominantly casts of color, I think are going to all kind of fall into But if this it's category. a good movie, shouldn't it just be included in the in category best for best yes. picture? Of yes, course it, it should. should. Yes, it should. And maybe they shouldn't be yeah. evaluating exactly. having those categories. Yeah. If they're going to really do this and make the change, just make that... One. Include include those. I mean, 100%. I, I don't see how it can be. It's going to be movies starring predominantly casts of color, unless the movie is incredibly big at the box office. I mean, Moonlight would not be in that category, right? right? But I mean, we, but they've but people have demonstrated over the past, particularly two years, that these movies that do star cast predominantly of color do get the best box office ratings. I mean, Hidden Figures, Get Out. Um, Black Panther this year. Um, these are films that really get people out to the box office, and they tend to lack the critical acclaim um, that they deserve. Right, but Hidden Figures is a nice example. I mean, maybe it do- should have an opportunity to compete in a slightly different category, not because it has a cast of color, but because it didn't fit into what any critic's idea of the best movie uh, of the year is, whereas Moonlight did. Right. I, I don't know. I, 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 I see what you guys are saying. On the, on the other <laughs> hand, uh, on the other hand, I, the, the other problem is they haven't really explained because they don't know yet what the criteria are, right? If the criteria yeah. is you have to make over $100 million or something like that, well, that's one thing. You know, if the criteria is we're going to make kind of an artistic discernment that this movie was made for more frankly commercial reasons, mm-hmm. that's a different thing. You know, and I wonder about Get Out. Get Out is on the one hand, yeah, it's a horror movie, but it's also – a social satire. It's like a lot of different things, although its maker says it's a horror movie. Um, I don't know. I, I, I would hate to see that get shunted into the popular film category because I, I think it is a film that has artistic merit too. Here's a question. Why would the Academy make this announcement before they'd worked out the details? So that we'd argue about it? Yeah, <laughs> and they could in public. They are, also, they're yeah. at the same crossroads and don't know what to do. Also, and they're hoping that in all the dialogue that happens that something good comes to them. I think yeah. that it is kind of something where they're hoping well, to But we get. already have the People's Choice Awards. Well, that's the thing. And the Golden Globes and all these other outlets for Screen that kind of skill. right and to Colin's point I'm, I'm wondering when they come out with these quali- with these um, criteria um, is this going to be the movie that grossed the most at the box office does that mean that the next Transformers movie is going to be nominated for best popular movie oh, is it going to be a quantifiable <laughs> choice like what yeah so are we talking about this arbitrary choice done by the Academy w- which people will give them a lot of crap for probably, or are we talking about um, an actual quantifiable numbers-based decision? Um, I think that's going to be an important distinction. I mean, you know, if if one were to be to take any of this stuff seriously and decide that the Oscars matter, the thing that they should do is be a little bit more open-minded about incorporating commercial movies right. into the Best Picture category. And a lot of years, the year that always bothers me, 
I think it was 2012, but okay, the, the movie that won Best Picture that year was The Artist. I believe that nobody has ever seen The Artist since it won Best Picture. Like maybe <laughs> people went out and saw it like for a couple of months because it won Best Picture, and then no one ever saw it again. There isn't anybody who's seen the movie The Artist in the past five years. Uh, yeah. it, it just like, why, why, why would anyone see that movie? Uh, now, the other nominees were the, the, the Descendants, kind of a mediocre Clooney, Alexander yeah. Payne, extremely loud and incredibly close. Nobody saw that movie. Uh, the Help, you know, that's kind of a commercial movie that's maybe an example of the kind of movie that might wind up in the other category. I don't know. Maybe Sandra's right about all this. Uh, Hugo, Midnight in Paris, Moneyball, The Tree of Life, War Horse. I mean, the truth is, those weren't really very good movies. <laughs> Yeah, that yeah. was just a rough year. They, huh? they, they could have pulled in some more commercial movies into that category and had a much stronger category. You know, what year yeah, I don't, uh, I don't think that, uh, expanding yes. the best picture category from five to ten has really helped the situation that much. Because no. I think that was their their first attempt to try to be more inclusive and diverse and boost their re- ratings and. Apparently, that didn't work. Right. All right. Well, they got us to talk about it. So that was like a big accomplishment right there. Um, I think that was the entire goal of these changes is to get the Oscars mentioned on the nose more. That's <laughs> the reason that they proposed all this stuff. And so there you go. Um, all right. So uh, we can move on. Um, I still want to – I want to keep my um, – uh, idea alive, though, that what they should do is have this veterans committee who, because there's all these movies that are, you know, famously like really good movies that weren't even nominated. They should either after five years or ten years reconsider all the movies from that year, five years ago or ten years ago, and go, oh wow, what did we miss? What's actually turned into kind of a classic or a yeah, cult classic? Or something? I recommend mm. Fences, uh, not Fences, but Hurricane. Mm. Yeah. Denzel Washington was fabulous in Hurricane, mm. and I think he wasn't nominated for political reasons. You and Denzel Washington. You got a Denzel Washington thing going on. I don't even love him, but I think he did a great job. (laughs) All right. So we're going to move on here to uh, Kathleen Turner. Kathleen Turner, um, well, let's give you a little dose of Kathleen Turner. Let's uh, start right there. Um, Apparently, um, people had forgotten who, who was the voice of Jessica Rabbit. You've got the wrong idea about me, Mr. Valiant. I'm a pawn in this, just like Roger. Can you help me find him? Just name your price, and I'll pay it. Yeah, I bet you would. You gotta have the rabbits to make the scam work. No, 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 I love my husband. You've got me all wrong. You don't know how hard it is being a woman looking the way I do. Yeah, well, you don't know how hard it is being a man looking at a woman looking the way you do. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. The late great Bob Hoskins, of course, is the other half of that conversation and who framed Roger Rabbit. So um, talk about a movie that probably needed its own category. That's like still one of my favorite movies. I just think it's a terrific I movie. just think it's, yeah. it's so much fun. So, uh, you know, what we get in this, um, and, and there have been some very interesting profiles of prominent uh, actresses lately. We almost uh, talked a few weeks ago about the Gwyneth Paltrow uh, goop profile in the New York Times. Uh, Kathleen Turner is a very different creature in a lot of ways. And she's frank. Uh, she's got a lot of ideas. She's got opinions about almost everything. She says that she is enraged about just absolutely everything. Uh, and um, Carolyn, she rem- reminds us also that her career has uh, taken some odd bumps and bruises. She went from being uh, a, a sex pot uh, who could play these femme fatales uh, to a woman afflicted with a very, very significant medical condition, rheumatoid, rheumatoid arthritis 
this, which uh, affected her ability to play roles. Uh, her appearance changed. Uh, she had some alcohol problems as a result of trying to, to control the pain. All of this comes out in the interview. Most of it's kind of on, on the record already. But this profile comes out of, I don't know, who did you meet in this profile? Uh, you know, this, I, I always liked Kathleen Turner in, you know, in her early movies. Uh, you know, you think of kind of that peak Kathleen Turner as like romancing the stone. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and then obviously like the voice of Jessica, her voice is so distinct. Like I, I was just fascinated with her voice as a child. It's very, her very husky voice. And so it's interesting when you read an interview with an actress like her where she is so like vocally driven for me. So, mm-hmm. you know, when I was reading this whole interview, uh, I, it, it, I was like hearing it in her voice. And uh, it, it struck me for, for this early in the interview, she says that she's just driven by anger. Mm-hmm. And I, that kind of bummed me out for her. Because, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I didn't really know that she had had so many struggles with her, with her health. I knew she had some struggles with um, alcohol abuse. And uh, obviously she kind of like dropped off from that like rise to fame and becoming sort of, you know, as she aged, becoming more of an actress like Meryl Streep or something where she kind of blossomed into all these different roles and characters. Um, she has to some extent, but not, she never really reached that level. And I kind of, in reading this, it sort of was like this, like, was that anger kind of part of the problem? If you're driven, somebody driven by anger, can you ever really succeed? Anger can be a motivator, but that, so that was a big takeaway for me in this. Um, Xander, I don't know how much of a relationship you would have had with um, with Kathleen Turner. Uh, one of the things that that I thought she said about herself that was very true was that her oeuvre is so composed of so many different kinds of roles that people kind of forget. People forget that she was – they forget about War of the Roses or Princey's Honor. Everybody remembers Body Heat and Romancing. Well, what are we going to say? I, I'm just going to say because she's, she's of the age where she probably – I saw this cartoon because I love cartoons. The voiceover work you would know her for, other than maybe having caught Roger Rabbit, is she plays the voice of the creepy house in Monster House. Oh, wait, weird. Yeah. Okay, so well, this is where her voiceover work, and it's funny because I think that that's a great way to describe what happened to her as an actress. She went from yeah. being Jessica Rabbit, being like, I'm not bad, I'm just drawn that way, to playing a monster house that eats children and is like, feed me. So, I mean, it really, that movie is really spectacular. It's a really fun cartoon. Yeah. I recommend watching it. And Kathleen Turner you know, does a usual, her usual great job. But it is kind of like, imagine being Kathleen Turner's agent, being like, well, we booked you. We got you a job. <laughs> right. You're going to be playing a monster house. Don't don't hit us. Like, <laughs> Well, she so, also, what I she think... did also was move a lot over into stage. In fact, right. I think she was yeah. here in Hartford in uh, theaters. Anyway, what were you going to say? Yeah, well, I was going to say, yeah, I, I don't know a lot of her work. Um, the movie that I grew up that she's in uh, uh, was The Virgin Suicides. Um, yeah. <laughs> completely forgot that she was the mom in that movie. Um, but... I really appreciated her frustration when she was discussing the fact that she wanted to branch out and be different roles in all of these films and that those roles just didn't really exist for her, Um, that she was completely put into a box and it was very specific and she was put into a box at the beginning of her career and at the end of the career and and towards the end of her career, towards the more recent part of her career. Um, And that despite the fact that she didn't want to be a one trick pony, um, that was sort of the only opportunity that film was allowing her to have. Of, um, I found that I found that frustration completely justified, and that that anger justified. The, you know, one of the Kate, I'm sure you have all kinds of reactions to this uh, interview. One of the things she does that you don't see actors <laughs> do that much is talk pretty frankly about other actors, both what they're like as people. I mean, uh, Nicolas Cage 
big surprise. It's not that fun, much fun to work with. Uh, she had to make his weird little voice in uh, Piggy Sue Got Married work somehow uh, by her own acting up against it. Um, uh, she talks about how weird William Hurt is. Uh, and, you know, I loved what she said about Jack Nicholson, which was when she did Pritzi's Honor. Um, he was good because John Huston said, stop winking at the audience like you're Jack Nicholson, not this character. Don't do that anymore. Be honest. You don't hear actors say stuff like that about each other. Yeah, I, I love uh, her frankness and her forthrightness. Uh, I like Kathleen Turner. I can see how she, she got put in a box uh, in terms of her roles. And, and I love that she's talking about the fact that she got put in a box in terms of her career and her uh, relationships with other actors and directors. And I'm really glad that she's speaking out now. Mm-hmm. I think hers is a voice that we need on, on many levels. The question I come away with from this Vulture article is where are the writers and where are the roles for mature, strong women like Jack Nicholson, Dustin Hoffman, Robert Redford, they've been able to keep working all these years. And I just hope that the, the, the new, new writers you know, look to people like Kathleen Turner uh, for inspiration for their writing. And that's been an ongoing problem, even going as far back with theater. You know, there just aren't, there aren't as many roles for women, period. And then you know, as a woman, you're either an ingenue or then there's a character actress role. That's kind of what what happens. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I do think I, I, I do hope that in this and her speaking out in this interview that somebody is inspired and that there are more roles created for actresses like that who are very talented and have a lot to offer. Well, she's, yeah. very, she's very tough on act. She's tough on everybody, and she's kind of a declinist, right? She's pretty dismissive of of most actors. The only uh, female actors that uh, today that she has uh, any time for, or at least any praise for, are Emma Stone and Nina Arianda. Um, we should say because she I, gives Meryl Streep her props. She gives Meryl Streep her props. Um, yeah. But but that, that's not a. Young, I'm talking about. She's a declinist about young actors. That's, I'm, Meryl Streep doesn't really enter into it. I'm saying she's talking about stuff that's out there right now. She's got no use for pretty much anybody, you know, of the current generation of actors. And so I also I have to get your guests so that one of the things that has sparked a little bit of fun on the Internet, there's a moment where she says, you know, there's one actress, I'm not going to say her name, who's played essentially the same role for role for 20 years. She's one of the richest people around. She still looks basically the same. Um, and, and she's contrasting that with herself. She who has played an awful lot of different kinds of, of roles. So what was your guess, Colin? Yeah. I'll, I'll wait till the end. I'll wait till the end. Or do, you, or do you want me to guess first? Yes. Um, I, I, to me, it's either Julia Roberts or Sandra Bullock. I, I don't know which one it is. Um, there are some other possibilities, but those are the two that fit everything that she just said. Um, I would say it's probably a slightly fairer say, thing to say about Sandra Bullock than it is about Julia Roberts. But I don't know. I could be talked out of that position. All right. Let's go around the table. I thought the exact same ones, yeah. it, Julia Roberts or Sandra Bullock. And then also I thought just because I had recently read an article, I was like, oh, Mariska Haggerty, who's literally been on Law & Order SVU playing that character for 20 years. <laughs> like she's never Careful, given that job. you're talking about a goddess of the person who's in the and I'm talking about somebody I've worked with. She could cut off your <laughs> microphone right now. Just for saying that. I, I, yeah. but, um, I think she might have. <laughs> All right, you've been you've been turned back on. Okay. Don't do that again, though. You're just playing with fire. Uh, She's a goddess. I do love her, but I mean, she has played that role, so I was I that jumped to my mind. Uh, 
I think Sandra Bullock is is probably the right guess. <laughs> but I say that because I, I just don't like Sandra Bullock very much. Well, <laughs> I actually like Sandra Bullock. But as I was reading, I was wondering if she was talking about Street. And then later on, she gave right. Street yeah. props. Yeah. So I realized she wasn't. But what I what I was amazed by was that she talked about, not amazed by, but she talked about the theater. And she talked about... Um, this this vision she had of casting mm-hmm. Lear as a woman mm-hmm. with daughters, not yeah. with sons. If somebody doesn't do that project now that she's named it, so well, Glenda, well, yeah. Glenda Jackson is yeah. is is uh, is working on Lear now, I believe. Well, that could be in the way of it. I also I appreciated the fact that she um, that she had no problem vilifying any male actor that she's worked <laughs> with, but either praised or redacted the name of any woman that she talked about. Except the entire except cast for the of cast of Friends. Well, right. yeah, but, which means that Jennifer Aniston also could be that woman who hasn't changed for. That's 20 what years I was now. thinking oh. that it could be Jennifer Aniston. Yeah. But then since she brought her up later in the interview, I wasn't sure. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to let that uh, mystery hang in the air. We're going to talk about a movie that we all went to see when we come back. Starring in the movies of our lives And the Academy Award for Good Times goes to All right, uh, Eighth Grade, which is currently playing in movie theaters, is directed by Bo Burnham. He himself, a very young internet celebrity, uh, and introduces us to the fairly bleak and bland world of um, a young woman named Kayla, Kayla Day. Uh, She's... um, uh, she's in eighth grade. Uh, she makes uh, YouTube videos in which she seems far more confident than she really is. Uh, she has uh, a single parent, a loving father uh, who is uh, spurned and shunned in every possible way by her, her being, after all, in eighth grade. Let's hear a little bit of that. This is Josh Hamilton. It's Mark Day, uh, Elsie Fisher uh, as Kayla Day there at the dining room table. She's uh, trying to keep her earbuds in. He insists on talking. I said one more week of eighth grade, right? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, huh? I can't believe you're gonna be in high school. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? I don't know. You excited? Yes. Yes. Yes, I'm very excited. I'm so excited. <laughs> All right, I'm the only person on this panel who has never been an eighth grade girl. However, I have been the father of an eighth grader, so that's that's my foothold here. But uh, Zandra, as somebody for whom this is a fairly fresh memory, not just that clip, but the movie itself, I, how did it land with you? Yeah, um, so I was uh, in eighth grade, I realized, nine years ago. Um, I saw it with my best friend who was also in eighth grade nine years ago. And when we left the theater, I think we spent between five and ten minutes actually just releasing the tension that we had been holding in our body for about two hours. Um, It was so uncomfortable throughout and so familiar in such a poignant and beautiful way. Um, I, I really I really enjoyed the film. I thought it was a very honest take on this perspective, and I have a lot of other thoughts about it, but I'll let people give their their first impressions. All right. We, will, uh, we definitely want to hear those other thoughts. Uh, I don't know. Kate, you know, get us started on, on your end here. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed the film as well. I saw it um, at the bow tie when it was free for some reason. I don't quite understand. But the, the, the theater was packed. There was 
uh, black, white, Hispanic, boys, girls, tweens, <laughs> parents with kids, people were on dates. There were groups of friends, and everybody was laughing and enjoying it. And this, I did not quite expect this from that reaction to a movie that normally I might expect to see at uh, Real Artways, maybe. Uh, because it, it does have a little bit of an art mm. art mm-hmm. movie feel, and it brought to my mind uh, uh, kids from uh, Larry Clark's kids back in '95. Uh, of course, that was very grim and nihilistic, mm-hmm. and this film is ultimately hopeful. Um, Carolyn, so I I left this. It it does such an amazing job transporting you back to that feeling of being. In, in eighth grade or th- an awkward teenager, maybe it was, you know, like ninth grade, somewhere between seventh and tenth grade, you will relate to this movie. And it's incredible that it does that because uh, there's so much that has changed in the world since, you know, the now like 20 years since I was in eighth grade. But it, this so this movie not only brought me back to that stress of like being that awkward teenager, wanting people to like you, wanting to fit in, like wanting to understand the world and trying to figure out who you are. But then adding in that element that of social media is terrifying. Like this made me realize how grateful I am that I did not have to be worrying about Instagram and Snapchat and Twitter and YouTube and Facebook when I was that age, because I feel like I would have been on overload. Um, th- actually, let's hear another clip from the movie that kind of speaks to that. So uh, in this case, Kayla, uh, our protagonist, who is, let's face it, an unexceptional eighth grader, an un- unexceptional uh, citizen of her world at this moment, uh, by some miracle is uh, taken uh, under the wing uh, of a somewhat more well-adjusted uh, high school student who, uh, and more popular high school student who even invites her improbably to join uh, this high school group at the mall. So you're going to hear a group of high school kids talking there, talking at at a level that's syntactically uh, a little bit more coherent than what Kayla is able to put together uh, most of the time in public situations. And they're talking about some of the stuff that Carolyn just mentioned. She's a different generation than us. She's, she's right not a to different generation. Yeah, she is. She's four years younger than us. I mean. Okay, but people who are like four years older than us felt like 50 years old. That's like blatantly not Your true. sister? My sister just sucks. Okay, but like on top of that, she didn't have Twitter in middle school, and we did. That made us different. Kayla, you're not different than us. <laughs> yeah. When did you get Snapchat? What grade? Fifth grade. Fifth grade? Okay, I'm going to be the skunk at the garden party. I didn't think this was a very good movie. But I also, as I say, was never an eighth grade girl. So this wasn't and, – and I did quite recognize the role of the father of the chronically unhappy uh, pre-adolescent uh, the, and the father who can go – there was a moment watching the movie. I was thinking about the incredible loneliness of this man because <laughs> he's, he's all alone in this house with his daughter who just cannot stand to talk to him most of the time. But on the other hand, yeah. he was a – great character. I think the movie is hopeful because the 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 parent in it, the father is like kind of with it and is at least attempting to connect with her and does a a good job with that. Like that monologue he does at the end is uh, amazing. Like every kid should have 
that said to them. Except that I'm – this is a trope. There are a lot of tropes here I'm tired of. I, I found – I like Josh Hamilton a lot, but I thought the, found this role to be incredibly bland. I mean at least in the, the movies that I think that this movie re, re, is part of a, of a trend of are Boyhood and Lady, Lady Bird, which both, you know, both share this movie's almost lack of a script – you know, there's sort of like these little unconnected moments that happen that maybe in an aggregate way add up to some kind of uh, meaning. Um, and But at least in those other movies, Patricia Arquette could explode once in a while and just yell at her daughter for not picking up the kid in school or something. And and God knows Laurie Metcalf was allowed to just, <laughs> you know, cut loose in Lady Bird. Whereas the father in this movie is just unrelentingly bland and cringing, uh, you know, to a point where I'm thinking, you know, you must be getting a little tired of this, too. And this kind of saintly forbearance, I, I, I just, it, it yeah. went on too long. Yeah, I, f- I found the character of the father to be very passive in a way that didn't work for me, whereas with the other adults who were in the film, say the principal and the guidance counselor, they were they were these adults trying to be cool and failing miserably. So I found that funny, but I didn't find the, the dad I funny. I guess I became so scared of adults relating to teenagers when I watched something like 13 Reasons Why, mm-hmm. where I felt like so much of that movie was like adults just being a totally closed circuit to these kids who needed somebody and needed an adult. And at least in this movie, yes, they were. It was, you know, like a principal dabbing and everything just is so sad. (laughs) But like... I did laugh at that. Yeah. (laughs) But at least like he is there and trying to be relevant to the kids and trying to connect with them. Whereas in something like 13 Reasons Why, you see adults who just aren't even trying and horrible things can happen. So I think this movie, while the these adult characters. And it's not about the adults. It really did show that world through those eyes of an eighth. Because when you're an eighth grader, adults are essentially like the adults in the Peanuts cartoons. They're like, wah, 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 wah. And like your world is so driven by your peers. So I think that this movie kind of kept those uh, lenses on that sort of... Although I feel watching movies like this that I can pretty much look at my watch and know when the wisdom-giving moment is going to come. It's going to come from Lois Smith as the nun in Lady Bird. It's going to come from Michael Stolberg, remarkably, in Call Me By Your Name. Uh, I would say that's a more elevated wisdom-giving moment. But there's sort of moments when adult land breaks through. And and actually, I think the speech that Josh Hamilton's character makes is kind of bland. I mean, it really, to me, is Hallmark card. I've always loved you. It's so easy to love. I agree you. with you on that one, Colin. Uh, I just think there's no poetry in this. And I want to go back to the Kathleen Turner interview. You know, one of the things that she talked about was the movie War of the Roses. And she said they wouldn't make War of the Roses today. They don't make movies like War of the Roses today. And I do feel as though movies about families have turned into these shoegazy, no script kind of movies that are just this kind of random bunch of interludes that kind of intersect. Uh, and, and nothing's at stake. The things that are at stake are never even talked about. I mean, Kayla's mother in this movie left yeah. apparently before she walked or talked, you know, but yeah, we're we sort don't of, know that. To I the was end. frustrated yeah. by we, the, we the are not allowed to consider either. anything of any importance that was ridiculous. in movies yeah. like this. I mean, you know, in the past, movies about families were ordinary people. Kramer versus Kramer, Tears of, uh, Terms of Endearment, uh, uh, yeah, War of the Roses. These were movies where there was a real script. One thing that Turner said in her interview that I thought was great was that she didn't feel like she had to go out and learn how to be a prostitute or something to play a prostitute. She said, if it's not in the script for me as an actor, then the script isn't good enough. And, and I feel like there's a devolution towards these other kinds of movies that just – 
seem to kind of wander around and hope that we'll basically add up everything at the end and figure something out. But did, anyway. Did you consider I mean. this to be a movie about a family? Well, I, I just mean it's not Black Panther and it's not okay. Lethal Weapon, sure. you know, and it, it's not – I mean it, it's a movie. It's a very human scale movie. Well, it's supposed know. to be a father-daughter movie a as bit. well yeah. as a as a eighth grader movie. I equated this in my mind more with um, – uh, Big Mouth, which was a yeah. animated series on Netflix about uh, like a coming of age. The characters in that are about the same age as as this, mm-hmm. and in this was kind of the same to me in that if you're an adult watching it, it takes you back to that time, and if you're if you were a kid watching this, uh, you it, it is almost like a great teaching tool because I think it it shows like everyone is kind of going through these things, and I think that that's something that. A lot of kids need to be reminded of they aren't isolated because I think that social media, while it like gives you all these connections, can be very isolating. No matter what your age, even for adults, there there is one scene that I that I want to talk about because I thought it was an incredibly important moment in the film, and that was the scene when Kayla is being driven home by the older boy, mm-hmm. um, and he kind of you know there's this very very uncomfortable like clear violation. Um, watching it reminded me of reading the New York Times piece or the New York Magazine piece uh, Cat Person from like last yes. winter mm-hmm. break or last winter winter break um, and um, in that there isn't real like cogent language to define the kind of violation that occurred in that moment you know it wasn't it wasn't rape it wasn't pedophilia it you know it was it was all kind of above board um, and yet it was so deeply uncomfortable and such an obvious violation. Um, And I think that because there isn't language for that, representations of these moments are incredibly, incredibly important. And I thought that that just did it super, super well, you know. That's Um, a really great point and and exquisitely expressed, too. Uh, I hadn't really thought about it exactly. Yeah, and one one thing I want to point out, which was a a big omission, I'd Mm -hmm. say, in eighth grade. Here's an R-rated movie. There's references to male genitalia and and dirty picture folders, and she, of course, she goes online and finds, looks up things, and and we see what she sees on the uh, computer screen, and yet there's not one mention of menstruation. Hmm. And anybody, any any eighth grade girl, anybody who's ever been an eighth grade girl or is raised an eighth, eighth grade girl knows that whatever is going on, that periods make everything worse. That's such oh, for a sure. good point. Yeah. I didn't even think I actually that. thought of that, that pool party scene. Yeah. Like I would have, I thought that there would be something with that because at that age, that's like the big. That's what you're worried yeah, about. Yeah. You're like, oh God, a pool party. <laughs> oh my God. That may be one of the problems with having a male director. Exactly. Both right. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I, I will say that one of the things, I, I don't want to suggest that I didn't enjoy this movie because there were some things that really leapt out at me and, and I certainly laughed at, at some of this stuff. I just feel like there's not enough at stake in these movies. But, um, um, I do want to say that in terms of there being things at stake and one of the reminders of ways in which there are these enormous generational shifts, to quote the guy at the mall, that actually <laughs> happened over about five years or six years, you know, the the, the normalization of the in-school shooter drill, uh, which they go through, I yeah. mean, you, you that just... That was chilling. It was completely mm-hmm. chilling. Yeah, this is something chilling. that I didn't go through. My son, who's 28 right now, he didn't go through it. This is something that is very much now a rite of passage or just part of the fabric, the warp and weave of 
of pre-adolescence and adolescence and even childhood, you know, that you go through these drills that are about situations where, in fact, someone might show up and try to kill you. This is completely new. Uh, and, and of all the things that were in there to acquaint me with the reality of being 13 or 14 or where, whatever right now, that, that really jumped out. Um, well, I guess we probably have to take a break right now anyway. Sorry to babble. Uh, we'll be back. In the unpopular movie category, the best picture is... La La Land! No, wait, it's Little Pink House! I am so happy for them. Little Pink House was such a great unpopular movie. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants. Kathleen Turner said she'd like to kick his grumpy little ass. And me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by William Hurt. On Monday's show, are the white supremacists winning? And now... Back to Colin. Yes, actually, on Monday's show, well, actually, this weekend is the one-year anniversary of Charlottesville. There's going to be probably um, some uh, further reenactments of Charlottesville and a lot of really interesting contemplation about it. So my guess is as we come back on Monday, that's where we're going to go. There's a very interesting piece in The Atlantic by Adam Serwer saying white supremacists are winning uh, by the the degree to which their rhetoric is being incorporated into the rhetoric of more mainstream people like, I don't know, Laura Ingram or other people on Fox. Anyway, we'll come to that. Uh, Time to make some endorsements, uh, some recommendations. Uh, Kate Russian, why don't you get us started? All right. I am reading Ebony and Ivy by Craig Stephen Wilder, and it talks about the relationship uh, that colleges have to the uh, system of slavery. But it's, it's more than you might think because it really does show also the the um, relationship, you know, people put down the South, but the North was an integral part of slavery mm-hmm. and also talks a lot about Native Americans. And I think it, it, it shows why we're dealing with certain issues today about race and diversity and immigration and all that. I also want to mention I Park. It's in East Haddam. It's an artist retreat. And um, my friend Allison Myers is back as executive director. And last week I went to see a performance by the Acropolis uh, Reed Quintet. And it was really great. So people should check out I Park. That's I hyphen park. And then bassist Nat Reeves and his quartet is going to be at the uh, side door in Old Lyme with their uh, – new CD on August 24th. Side door is a really nice place to see jazz. Um, uh, Xandra, what would you like to recommend? Um, so I have uh, never been on your show or heavily involved in your show without uh, it having some connection to pop music. Mm-hmm, um, that's true. So I uh, am going to endorse um, a new album that I've been really obsessing over um, for the past couple of weeks. Um, and that is I Don't Want the Goldfire Sessions, which is a new Santa Gold album. Um, and Santa Gold is um, kind of a 
pop, reggae fusion, dance artist. She actually went to my alma mater, Wesleyan, so I have to I have to give her a special endorsement for that reason. But this is a really, really fun album. Great for if you're driving around, working out. Um, it's a really fun dance summary album. Um, and if, like me, you just started Sharp Objects and need to kind of take the edge off with some fun music, um, I would definitely recommend this album. <laughs> All right. Uh, great recommendation. Uh, thank you, Zandra. What have you got uh, over here? Uh, I discovered a show on Netflix that I ended up just kind of then binging, Dark Tourist. Uh, and it's a uh, this the guy who is the host of it, he produced it. He's a journalist from New Zealand. And the whole show is him traveling to all these places around the world that have to do with, like, death, destruction, horror, uh, like, weird history and uh, it's just such a great concept and the people he comes across and encounters who are into this and uh, just all these characters that he meets uh, along the way and their fascination with everything from like Dahmer to uh, decorating corpse brides to all sorts of things. I mean, it is so fascinating um, and kind of makes you want to go to some of these places, but also not. <laughs> um, but it's definitely it's definitely a good, uh, a worthy Netflix binge. Okay, say the name again. Dark Tourist. Dark Tourist. All right. So um, uh, I was struggling a little bit. I must not be living a life right now. So one thing that I'm, I'm going to do is kind of do a kind of callback to a show that we talked about a, a few weeks ago because it's now run the course of its first season. It's on HBO. It's Succession. Uh, at the time, we had a bunch of people on, including John Dankowski, who had some problems with the series. And though they are understandable problems for people who don't know the series. Speaking of Lear and Kathleen Turner wanting to do it, this is uh, somewhat a Lear-like story of a Rupert Murdoch-type titan uh, played by Brian Cox and, and his family, all of whom, all of his offspring are completely dysfunctional and for the most part cynical and horrible people who bear him no allegiance whatsoever <laughs> but want to fight over the spoils of his empire if there are ever going to be any. Um, I, I just feel as though this is sharply and brilliantly written. Um, the dialogue is is just spectacular uh, and I think there's sort of a lot there too. I, I think uh, the immediate thing to do is a lot of people are saying, what are why do I want to hear about the problems of these very unappealing one or maybe half of one percenters? Um, the truth is, if you think about sort of most of Shakespeare's history players, they are about one percenters. Uh, Richard III is about a bunch of one percenters. Um, and this has a very Shakespearean streak to it. Uh, there are some uh, remarkable performances. One of them is given by Kieran Culkin, who really plays this kind of Mercutio-like wasted uh, member of the family who uh, you know, seems to be uh, drunk or high most of the time, but is kind of spitting out these, uh, spitting out these mordant little quips and barbs uh, that get awfully close to the truth. So uh, I don't know. It's just a, a very interesting cast. And I will say that it's uh, one of the creators behind it is uh, Adam McKay, is both producer and director. He was uh, responsible for The Big Short. And uh, talk about Oscars. I'm very excited for this December when Backseat comes out. This is his story about Dick Cheney with Christian Bale playing uh, Dick Cheney and Amy Adams playing uh, Lynn Cheney and then just this terrific <laughs> top-to-bottom <laughs> cast. I mean, uh, obviously movies can misfire. Uh, you can't go by the creative team or the <laughs> cast, but it just seems like it ought to be an awful lot of fun. Uh, so anyway, if you didn't try Succession, give it a shot. Watch 
you know, maybe three, four episodes, see if uh, it hooks you. The writing is really great. And then if your attention span is much shorter and you haven't seen this yet, just for the sheer weirdness of it, I have no idea what to make of this or what this means, but flying around in the internet today is a very old clip of Vladimir Putin, uh, first of all, plunking out the first few notes of Blueberry Hill and then standing up to sing it with a band. Uh, I... <laughs> <laughs> I just I don't understand Vladimir Putin. I don't want to understand Vladimir Putin, but uh, it just is one of those sort of weird little sort of multiverse moments. Like where are we right now? Uh, you might want to watch that. Hey, this has been a terrific panel. Thanks so much to Kate Russian, uh, Carolyn Payne, and the indispensable intern whom we soon will have soon will have to live without, uh, Zandra Ellen. And thanks obviously to Jonathan McPants and Kion Wolf. <laughs> <laughs>